Welcome to the New Zionist Podcast, a brand new show from New Zionist Congress. I'm Noah Shufatinsky. I'm Isabella Hazan. And I'm Blake Flayton. We're your three hosts, and we're here to offer a new, young, and authentic take on all things Zionism, Jewish culture, Israel, and politics. This week, we'll be discussing the joys of reconnecting with our Jewish brothers and sisters in physical spaces again, shoring up our literal and spiritual connection to the Temple Mount, the fascinating history of the largest tea company in Israel, and some United States representatives that have our hearts. But first, what is New Zionist Congress? We at NZC are here to build a space where young people can meet to discuss their passion for Jewish self-determination, learn about Jewish history, Israeli history, and contemporary Jewish issues. In the name of every Jew who has ever lit a candle in the darkness, we're here to build a bonfire. So please make sure to follow us on Twitter at New Zionist and on Instagram at New Zionist Congress and make sure to sign up to become an official member at NewZionist.org. I'm a proud part of the diaspora. In my heart to hold Jerusalem and Africa. Kick the side of our land and started gassing us. Till we put our foot down cause we had enough. Check out the flag that I'm waving. Two blue stripes and a huge star David. Check out the flag that I'm waving. Keep shooting rockets but you never gonna take it. So Blake, so Isabella, I loved your Insta stories that had major FOMO, felt like taking a six hour drive and driving down to New York. Can you talk to us about this vibe? Oh my God, Isabella. Okay, so yesterday in Central Park, picture it, it's 2 p.m., it's 91 degrees, that didn't matter. It is hot Zio summer, full send, full steam ahead. Jordan Tilchin and Sasha Goodman, who are two iconic Jewesses, set up this meet and greet, this event in Central Park where pro-Israel people from all across New York City could come and wave their Israeli flags and dress in blue and white. We had balloons, we had drinks, we had food, we had music, we had dancing, we had the most amazing conversations. We took so many pictures. It was everything. And I think I was probably the most paranoid person there because everybody was posing behind their large Israeli flags and like singing in Hebrew and like waving their little flags. And it was just very, very obvious. And I was like actually afraid. I was like, I don't know if somebody's going to come up to us in Sheep's Meadow and start yelling or say something off kilter. But we didn't experience any of that. It was just dozens of people gathered for this event that Sasha and Jordan organized. Um, and we also had some NZC people show up as well because we wanted to do a little conjoined meet and greet in the park and kind of combine forces. Um, and I'm so grateful to them for setting this up because it was exactly what I needed. Like dancing the horror in front of all of New York City, like, was the most rewarding, best experience I could have asked for after an absolutely insane month. Um, And I think everybody there, and there was people there from, like, all ages. There were kids there with their parents, and there were older people. There were people who didn't live in New York, but who drove in from, like, the tri-state area for specifically this event. Exactly. You should have driven down from I should have. Literally. It was so, so much fun. And we also wrapped to fill in. I saw. Yeah. Rabbi Shlomo Litvin, who, if anybody's listening. Oh, on Clubhouse. Yes, I love on him. On Clubhouse. 
Rabbi Litvin shows up to like every single Jewish room on Clubhouse. So for those of you who don't know what tefillin is or don't know what wrapping tefillin is, tefillin are two little boxes that contain holy prayers. And we wrap it on ourselves. It goes, one box goes on our on our foreheads and the other goes at the edge of our arm. And you wrap it during morning prayers uh, to kind of reestablish a connection with God uh, throughout the day. And it's super beautiful. Every time I wrap tefillin, you say the Shema, you say the Ve'ahavta. Um, and then when I wrap tefillin with a Chabadnik from somebody in Crown Heights, you have to scream, we want Mashiach at the end of it. Because we do. Because we all do. So it was a really great opportunity for anybody there who wanted to, to wrap tefillin um, and to have fun while doing it. And to also have people who didn't know a lot about Judaism or didn't really know what this gathering was kind of watching and kind of wonder and curiosity as to what this ritual was, as to what was happening. Like we got some people who were looking at us and who were kind of, you know, talking to their friends, but it was all positive, you know? And I just think that so much of Judaism has an air of secrecy about it especially in New York, where people kind of think of like super Jewish communities as being insular. But that so out and proud in the open was really special. So we danced, we talked, we wrapped a fill-in. We had a wonderful time under the sun. And also like to be in person, I bet that's like, was an amazing feeling to be in person, like physically with a bunch of other 40, 50 Jewish people. I can't describe to you how manic... I feel after hanging out with people in person because I've been doing it a lot and I know I've been doing it too much because I've been spending way too much money already since I I saw a tweet that I really resonated with. It was like, you know, maybe I shouldn't have gotten the vaccine because now I can't stop seeing people and spending money. And I'm like, relatable because I just want to meet everybody and go out to lunch with anybody. And someone's like, hey, do you have dinner plans? I'm like, I do now. Let's hang out because I've been so isolated for so long. So the Jewish community is now just exploding in social events and like meet and greets and like dance-offs and 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 morning, evening, afternoon prayers. And I'm doing all of it in New York. And it, it just makes me so excited and happy to be alive because this is something that I know we all talked about during the pandemic. You know, oh, I miss going out with friends, but I don't know if we understood the visceral impact that quarantine had on all of us until you reconnect with Jews in a kind of a spiritual space, whether that be as simple as a Zionist meetup in Central Park where you can connect with with people who, you know, are not yelling at you on the internet or who, you know, acknowledge and, and are also activists for Israel's right to exist, or whether that be, like, at a, at a synagogue, at, like, an, at a religiously Jewish space. It is such a relief, and it's so amazing. It's the best feeling in the world right now. I hope it'll last. I hope it doesn't go back to normal. I hope I'm this excited to hang out with people for the rest of my life. <laughs> I feel that. Kind of got a little bit of that here. Like once I got here, even just like on Friday morning, going to get like a challah or something before Shabbat and just seeing people like out and about. And it's super like crowded. Like it's the most crowded I ever see in my neighborhood. And it's just nice to actually see people like smiling and like see little kids like hanging out with each other. It's refreshing. Like, And I, same, like I hope I hope I stay this excited about it. So thank you, uh, Pfizer. Thank you, Moderna. Thank you, Johnson & Johnson. <laughs> Well, guys, it's time for care about this, not that. Look, sometimes we all get wrapped up in a thing or a topic that seems so important, but often it's just not worth it. And we can be focusing our time and energy on other things that really do matter. We'll use this space to point out these issues when we see them, and hopefully we'll give you something better to worry about.
So one thing that I've seen get a lot of attention recently are quite a few comments made by this uh, comedian, Amir Zar. Recently, like he came out with a, a statement, you know, talking about supporting uh, Palestine right now. And he was literally telling his followers and supporters and fellow pro-Palestinian activists uh, not to condemn anti-Semitism because apparently that's a distraction. Um, and this is someone who's made all kinds of crazy comments in the past that have gotten like a huge amount of responses um, he was claiming Jesus was a Palestinian like a couple of years ago. It's something that he keeps getting like reposted every Christmas. And honestly, what are we doing? Like, why would you expect anyone who has a history of anti-Semitism uh, to act any different? Like, he doesn't deserve that sort of political nuance. So I'm going to say, call it out. Of course, always call out bigotry when you see it and then keep it moving instead of continuing to get it attention. Like, I don't want this to be the thing that we're losing sleep over. Now, something that we really should be caring about is the fact that the main bridge used by the Jewish people who are going up to the Temple Mount is in immediate danger of collapse, according to Ofer Cohen, who's an engineer um, and who wrote a letter to the authorities calling for its immediate replacement. So a little bit of background. Um, there's a wooden bridge that Jewish people are able to use to get onto the Temple Mount where our temple once stood in Jerusalem. There are a lot of restrictions about Jewish what Jewish people can and can't do there. You can't really wear like Jewish objects there. You're not supposed to pray there. Um, due to like the situation in the status quo with the Jordanian government having some authority there. And there's this bridge that was built a while ago um, out of wood that is literally in danger of collapsing. And this is something that has been brought up before, but it hasn't been replaced because people are worried about the fact that, you know, adding any sort of new construction that's related to Jewish presence on the Temple Mount is going to like inflame these tensions uh, between, you know, the Jordanian government the Palestinian authorities who are also having like a say in that uh, Temple Mount and then also the Israeli government. It's like indicative of a bigger problem that Jewish presence in our you know, holiest location is so controversial. I've actually walked on that bridge to go to the Temple Mount. And as you said, Noah, it is very, it's very tense. You know, um, Jews are not very um, welcomed on the Temple Mount, even though it's in Israel. And to me, it's interesting because the world sees the Kotel, the Western Wall, as the holiest place for Jews. But really, where the, the mosque is and above, where the Temple Mount is, on the Temple Mount, it's Kodesh HaKodeshim, the holiest of the holiest places. When I went, there was religious Jews who were walking barefoot and it was raining. That's how holy it is to us. And um, I remember going. We couldn't even walk without Israeli security maybe two steps with like two steps behind us. And every step that we would take, they would have to follow us. We couldn't walk freely on the Temple Mount and we couldn't even pray. I remember I was with Ophel Dayan. Um, she's very active in the Israel space as well. And she goes there pretty often and just something that, that's very important to her. And, you know, I think should be important to all of us too, as it is. And she was saying how we're not allowed to pray and you could be arrested for praying on the Temple Mount as a Jew. And I remember thinking, like, really? And then once I actually got there, I was like, okay, she wasn't kidding. And I, I did mumble prayers, but if you were caught mumbling prayers, you could be arrested. And people look at you, um, people look at you like, what, what are you doing? People will ask you to stop. And um, it's very real because this is a very holy spot for Jews. And it's uh, something that we should be talking about way more, as you said, Noah, and, and not paying attention to um, his... Uh, comedians who aren't so funny. I was on a podcast, not a podcast, I was doing an Instagram live a couple weeks ago with somebody who wanted to provide a platform for Jews and, and Palestinians and, and Jews and Muslims to kind of 
understand the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and to debate each other and argue with each other and to have kind of meaningful discussions. And I said the words, the Temple Mount, right, referring to recently, right before the the live happened, there were clashes at the Temple Mount at Al-Aqsa. So I kept on saying, the Temple Mount, Jews are not allowed to pray at the Temple Mount. And he said, well, wait, what is the Temple Mount? Because I know what Al-Aqsa is, but I'm not sure what that second, what, what that term means. Like, I, it's hard for me to even wrap my head around how renovating a bridge where like the bridge already exists, it's literally going to be renovated. It's going to be like in the same place, how that's an act of like Judaizing. Like that's the term that's always used in anti-Semitic media that like any Jewish excavation, any presence in Jerusalem is Judaizing Jerusalem. Do and, you think that that's always anti-Semitic when people use that term? Yeah, I actually do. I think almost every time, I mean, if they're using it in a, in a way to attack, in an antagonistic way, I personally do. Like, how are you going to Judaize the place where Jews come from? This is where every Jew prays to. It's also, in any context, I think very erasive because it's never really used in a positive light. How is a Jew going to Judaize Judea? And if if we're if we're going to be surprised by people, by people being one-sided and not knowing what the Temple Mount is, we're not calling it Kodesh HaKodashim. We're not using, you know, we're not calling Sheikh Jarrah Shimon HaTzadik, you know? So to me, it's like if we're not using the right terms, well, no wonder people are going to say it's Judaizing. And I and I, I think it's wrong just to use those terms because you dig in the land and you literally see ancient Judean artifacts. How are Jews Judaizing Israel? I'm going to disagree. Um, only because there is, in fact, another population and another culture there. And there is, in fact, an effort on the Israeli right to dilute that culture and that population, whether by evictions, as in Sheikh Jarrah, or whether by, you know, settlers seeing something in the West Bank and saying, oh, this was in the Bible. This has biblical Judaic significance. Therefore, we have a right to it. Therefore, we have a right to this neighborhood. We have a right to this resource. Um, it's not something that I'm comfortable with. I do think that as somebody who is optimistic of their one day, or maybe not optimistic, but would like to see one day a Palestinian state with a capital in East Jerusalem, I think that the... When, when people say unified one Jerusalem, I kind of cringe a little bit because it's not realistic. And also, how do we get to that one unified Jerusalem without kind of taking on the parts of the Israeli right that I know a lot of us aren't comfortable with? I agree with you on uh, the issues that you brought up with the far right. And that's all political. But at the end of the day, um, I believe that when we're using the term Judaizing Israel and any parts of it, um, it's never really used in a positive light. And I think that one thing that Jews in Israel are going to have to grapple with, and whether it's the left or the right, is how are we going to stay you know, connected to our land? And there is a people here, Palestinian people, and they have a strong connection to this land as well, but so do we. And I think that when we're using terms like Judaizing Judea or Judaizing Israel, for me, it's almost as though I'm ready to celebrate both of our connections to the land, but not water down the Jewish connection at the same time. I mean, I think that my biggest issue with like that term and this idea of Judaizing Jerusalem or anywhere else in the land where the Jewish people originate is it's not, it's not factual and it doesn't necessarily 
line up with other times where people's culture, ethnicity is used as like an, an izing, like Arabization campaigns. Like there are Arabization that, campaigns that happened in Iraq under Saddam Hussein against the Kurdish people mm-hmm. where they forced them to adopt Arab culture. Mm-hmm. And they did that in land where Arabs historically were not from. That was an imperialist conquest over Kurdistan and they forced them to adopt Arab uh, cultural traits. Same thing with our Imaziga and brothers in North Africa. I was going to bring that up. They didn't, yeah. Like, but like they didn't, no, no one would say that that Mecca is Arabized because it's in Arabia. It's not Arabized. That's where Arab culture comes from. So for me, it's like, if you're going to say that Jewish land where the Jewish people originate is being Judaized, that's trying to make it an equivalent thing to an example of like an Arabization campaign in Kurdistan where Arabs are not from Kurdistan. Uh, but in certain places they attempted, not necessarily successfully, uh, but to force Arab culture on non-Arab people. When we're looking at actual history in Israel, in the land, that's not us forcing Jewish culture on people on a non-Indigenous land. That's us recognizing that we have a history in this land. I'm a proud part of the diaspora. We all know the famous Wasatsky Tea Company. Blake and Noah can do with a proper and say with a proper accent. I feel like I was just profiled for being Ashkenazi. Too bad. <laughs> so now you've walked into it. Go ahead. Um, we're waiting on you. So I wasn't profiled for being Ashkenazi, but my last name gave it away. So Wasatsky Tea Company. Shout out the ski last names. Wasatsky. Mm. Yes. So. This tea is found literally in every Jewish home, synagogue, Jewish day camp. And for those of you who know, the Jerusalem lobby, Shidur Dates, I know you guys know. Um, literally any hotel in Jerusalem that you walk into, you'll have religious people, Orthodox people sitting down on their Shidur Dates. And that's what they'd be sipping on, Wasatsky tea. So what does this tea have to do with Zionism, Jewish survival, and um, sounds pretty random, but there's a really cool and interesting story to it. And next time you'll be sipping this tea, whether it's on an Israel trip or at home, I hope you think of the story. So Kamen Wasatsky, born in 1824, started a tea company at the age of 25. This company ended up being extremely successful as he sold his tea to the entire Russian army, which was millions and millions of people. The World Zionist Organization approached him and suggested that he should open up this tea company, a franchise in Israel. He laughed. He thought this was a crazy idea. The market was so small and there were so many obstacles. In the end, as Jews were very persistent people, he ended up doing it. And what was super interesting is that because he did this, his tea company was able to survive. In 1917, the Communist Party took over Russia and he lost his company. And because he had opened this co- uh, franchise of this company in Israel, it was able to survive. And now his um, descendants run it. So this tea survived. And this tea kind of followed along the Jewish story, the Jewish story of survival. And I think it's really beautiful. And it's really a nice thing to think about next time you're sipping on your tea. Yeah, no, it's, I think it's a really important story. It's like, it also just speaks to why we should be teaching our children about Soviet anti-Semitism and why there were assets that were frozen by the communists, why there were Jews. I mean, Jews left Russia for a reason. And so this tea company is outlawed. The assets are seized in Russia when the communists take over, and it is transported to Israel, and from there, it becomes the most successful tea company. And I think that's important. (laughs) 
It's also like a good lesson about like door le door, like from generation to generation. Like by the time that Israel was established, Kalman Wisatsky had passed away. And it's his children and grandchildren and grandchildren and the heirs of the company um, and who, who's ever is owning it now in Israel that's actually able to to benefit from that from that dream that he laughed off, like you said, Isabella, like that he literally thought it was a crazy idea. Yeah. And as Jews, we are literally the descendants of those who chose to preserve our identity. And that's a universal Jewish story. Every one of our ancestors faced pogroms, persecution. Before Israel, this is the first generation where there isn't a pogrom. Before the state of Israel, there was many ways of anti-Semitism. And Jews were always looking over their shoulder, not knowing what's going to happen next. Are we safe? And it goes to show that we are really a link in the chain. And we are passing down the torch. You know, you start off the episode with something so beautiful every time. And the story also speaks to that. During the marches for the release of Soviet Jewry that took place during really from the 70s to the 90s in, in the United States, there was a sign, there was a slogan that said, Nazis killed the bodies, Soviets killed the soul. There's an incredible writer who is on our advisory board. Her name is Isabella Tabarovsky. Um, and she writes very eloquently about Soviet Jewry and the specific kind of manifestations and 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 facets of Soviet anti-Zionism, um, which American Jews just don't understand and can't comprehend how against Jewish self-determination they are, how obsessed they are with demonizing and vilifying Israel. There is a huge swath of people, including Jews, who cannot put together that even if the diaspora Jewish community is so separated from Israel, nobody speaks Hebrew, it's all Ashkenazi, however you want to classify it. If Israel is constantly at the center of the dartboard, it will only end in persecution, discrimination, and violence toward Jews. Because the anti-Semite can't differentiate between the two, right? And it is always going to conflate the two together. And honestly, like even in like Russia during the time of the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, in the 90s and then even into like the early 2000s, you saw like the reemergence of the anti-Semitism that was in Tsarist Russia and the stereotypes about like the Jews and hoarding the money. Um, and it affected all the different communities. And, and the people felt comfortable doing that because even in a government that outlawed anti-Semitism during the USSR, there's so much targeting of Jews. So you had like these pogroms that happened uh, to Bukharian Jews in Uzbekistan that was part of the USSR and happened to Kafkazi Jews in Dagestan and also happened to Ashkenazi Jews who were living like in uh, European part of Russia. The wake of determined cause we're returning to the ways that they tried to erase that we're preserving scattered in the wind in diaspora conditions still maintain the connection to our traditions Morocco to Havana Yemen living in Aden Ciudad de Mexico Buenos Aires we're all one nation here at NZC, we love celebrating important and inspiring Jews and allies, but we also have to throw shade where shade is due. We call this segment our Haman and Habibis of the Week. Haman is the name of the villain of the Purim story. <laughs> He sought to destroy the Jewish people. Habibi means my love, and when we say Habibi, we're referring to our homies and our allies. <laughs> Habibis are people who we admire and who we feel should be highlighted for their activism and work. Our Hamans, however, are people who are working against the common goals of the Jewish people. You can say they're canceled, and we'd love for them to just shut up and go away. 
So I'm going to start off with the good news today. And the good news is I have not one, but two Habibis. So my two Habibis are number one, Mati Friedman. For those of you who don't know, Mati Friedman is an Israeli writer who for the past month has been churning out just the most impressive, poignant, and important commentary on the issues that we're all grappling with, whether it be the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, whether it be anti-Semitism, whether it be Jewish history, etc. And two pieces that were just released in the past two weeks were, one, the Americanization of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which was published in The Atlantic, which did an excellent job of explaining how Americans have a really bad habit of imposing our own domestic drama onto the conflict in order for it to make sense to us. And not only for it to make sense to us, but also to easily construct Jews and Palestinians as villain and good guy and as victim and victimizer. That was one. And then the second one he published was in Tablet called Theodore Herzl is Alive and Well and Living in New York, which highlighted the chutzpah and just the audacity of Theodore Herzl as a secular Jew to understand the climate in which he was in, in France, in Prague, in Vienna, and know that the solution to the Jewish question needed to be a political solution because anti-Semitism in and of itself was a political question. Without having Jewish education, he rebelled against the powers that be and came up with this insane plan, seeing that it did not matter how assimilated Jews were into their surrounding society. They were always going to be targeted. They were always going to be scapegoated so long as they had no means of protecting themselves, so long as they had no seat at the international table of, of, of political affairs. Um, and it was really an inspiring piece that kind of, I think, captured our moment right now. So, Mati Friedman, we love your work. We think you're super important. Please come on our podcast. We'd love to have you. Um, Yala. Secondly, um, the Habibi is obviously Congressman Richie Torres. You guys, I don't even know where to start. Richie Torres, who I had the pleasure of meeting with recently, is the future, or I really hope he's the future. I really hope that we can all be optimistic in hoping that we will see many more Richie Torreses come up from the woodwork in the next couple of years. This is a progressive Afro-Latino gay man um, who cares deeply about the issues of the poor, who cares deeply about the working class, who cares about education, healthcare, criminal justice reform, but also cares strongly about Israel. And he said point blank on Bill Maher on Friday, he was on Real Time with Bill Maher, that vilifying Israel and making up lies about Israel and holding Israel to a double standard at the political level directly leads to violence and animosity towards Jews. This is a progressive member of Congress directly implicating his fellow progressive members of Congress and tying a connection between exaggerated and false rhetoric surrounding the Jewish state to violence and animosity towards Jews in the diaspora. That is so important for a Democrat to be saying that on primetime television in front of an audience of millions of people. I can't even overstate it because it's something that very few Democrats have shown a backbone in actually doing. So for Richie Torres, Congressman Richie Torres, to have the bravery to call out what it was and to say it openly that Israel is held to a double standard and that, listen, if there were rockets being launched into your country— 
What would we expect any other civilization to do, any other nation to do? Why is Israel torn down and beaten up and, and then Zionists and the diaspora are? That's got to be a double standard. Total bravery. Um, and I commend him for it. Congressman Richie Torres just gets it. I love how he said this is a brown-on-brown conflict. It's something that Khal Mazik says often. And um, it's such an important point because it shows that he gets it. First of all, he said the word Mizrahi Jew. I never thought I would hear a politician say the word Mizrahi. To me, that was so important and so touching. I'm a proud part of the diaspora. My Haman of the week is Vox.com. For those of you who don't know, They published an article on June 2nd entitled The Anti-Semitism Surge. And the tweet which introduced this article said, violent anti-Semitism spiked in America during the Israel-Hamas war, and we don't know why. The author brings up three possible scenarios as to why there's been an increase in anti-Semitism. And the first theory he brings up is that it could be possible that these anti-Semitic attacks that we're seeing are happening completely by chance, that they are just random incidents. That's a completely ridiculous theory, okay? So random, across the globe, at the same time, and the perpetrators are saying the same slogans. I really wonder why. Like, that's so random. The second theory he brought up was that, this was what got me. I'm not going to lie, guys. This is what got me. The second theory that he brought up was that perhaps this is a continuation of the rise in anti-Semitism we saw from the alt-right during Donald Trump's administration. And then the third theory was like, maybe, perchance, this is a sign of a like burgeoning animosity toward Israel being taken out on American Jews. That was the third theory. It's the, I can't condemn anti-Semitism unless it carries a tiki torch that gets me. That really upsets me. Like, oh, it must be something that the alt-right is doing or that like all manifestations of anti-Semitism are somehow a product of white nationalism. I think that like what that really shows is just the extent at which anti-Semites go to demonize Jews wherever we are. And they'll use different code words to make it more or less politically correct and socially acceptable. And people cater to different audiences to make their anti-Semitism more palatable. And really, like, what it shows is that, you know, anti-Zionists, they don't want Jews to live here in Israel. And then at the same time, they're attacking Jews who are living in the diaspora. So at the end of the day, like, it becomes apparent that they just don't want Jews to live. And just end the sentence right there. They don't want Jews living anywhere. They don't want Jews living. So as we're wrapping up the show, we'll have a little mini Dvar Torah. And I think it's a really beautiful way to end, especially now as it is Rosh Chodesh, which, is, which means the beginning of the month, Rosh which means the head, and Chodesh, which means month. And uh, the Jewish calendar follows the, follows the moon. It is based on the moon. It is a lunar calendar. And as the month begins, the moon is much smaller, and there isn't that much light. And as the month gets bigger and the days go on, the light and the moon gets bigger. And that shows that as time goes by, the light comes through, and in the end, the light always prevails. And there's a really beautiful quote by Anne Frank. And it's that a candle can both defy and define darkness. So even though there may seem, it may seem like dark times are, are hard and it's inundating us and we hear about the anti-Semitism in the diaspora and we're hearing what's happening in Israel, in the end, it is truly always the light that prevails. And what we're doing here, um, sharing facts, talking about our Jewish identity, being proud, to me, that's light. And bringing forward, you know, Jewish pride is light. And um, I think it's really beautiful to share this many, this many things. So next time you look at the moon, you can think of how 
uh, as the days progress, so does the light. Well, everyone, that's all from us this week. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. Please remember to follow us on Instagram at New Zionist Congress, on Twitter at New Zionists, and please make sure to sign up to become an official member at newzionists.org. That's newzionists, plural, dot org. And stay tuned for our episode next week. I promise we will be revealing the plans to seize the menorah from the clutches of the Vatican. We know they have it. We have confirmation that they have it. It's ours. It's our property. We deserve it. Okay? So make sure you're listening in. Thanks, everyone. See you next time. See you soon. I'm a proud part of the diaspora. In my heart, I hold Jerusalem and Africa. Kick the side of our land and started casting us. Till we put our foot down because we had enough. Check out the flag that I'm waving. Two blue stripes and a huge star, David. Check out the flag that I'm waving. Keep shooting rockets, but you never gonna take it.